Um, preacher, is there any specific time we intend to end the one session and, and break and stuff? Okay, boy, those are dangerous words. <laughs> yeah, but I like to hear them. I was up here fooling with this pulpit before. Uh, we started this morning, and preacher was back on the back. I put it way up here. And then I got on a conviction. The preacher had to rest his chin on it. So I put it back down, part the way. I, I was in a church in, um, I believe it was Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania. And uh, I was preaching. It was one of those, you know, it was a pulpit, a pulpit like that, similar to that one. I had the middle and then I had the two sides. And, uh, you know, I, I, you, you feel something underneath. Usually I'd feel chewing gum or something underneath the edge. Uh, used, of course, and uh, well used. And uh, I found something, and it wasn't chewing gum. And I pushed that thing, and all of a sudden, the pulpit started coming up <laughs> like this. Got a button to raise it or lower it. Uh, and uh, so I figured that out and put it where I wanted, and then did my best to leave it alone. Well, it's going to be back. Uh, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. I, we started. I don't know if it was on purpose or not. I started a theme last night on this thing of soul winning. We talked last night about uh, specifically praying, how to pray uh, for the unsaved. And uh, I hope that you'll put that into practice. It, it, when I learned some of those things, it literally revolutionized my prayer life. Not just prayer in general, but uh, praying specifically, specifically for the unsaved. And we've got to get past that. Uh, preacher mentioned it this morning. We have to get past that mechanical praying. You know, we, we, we pick up the religious jargon. Uh, most people, you know, there's a, there's a, I probably shouldn't tell you this. I might preach on it sometime. Uh, there's a verse in Acts chapter 12. Herod, this had nothing to do with the message. Herod had uh, arrested uh, James and killed him. It pleased the Jews. When he saw it pleased his constituents, why he got a hold of Peter and stuck him in prison. Wasn't going to crucify him on that day because the Bible says it was the Easter. So he waited till the next day. And that night, Peter's in prison, fully expecting, knowing he's going to get executed the next day. I mean, fully aware of it. And yet he's fast asleep. And I thought, how in the world can he sleep like that? How can a guy sleep under those conditions? Well, you have to understand, number one, he had the grace of God. I mean, God promised more than sufficient grace for every hour of life, including the dying hour. You, don't have, you might not have grace to die right now, but when your time comes, you will have. But there's another reason. In John chapter 20 or 21, I believe it's 20, uh, Jesus told Peter, when you're an old man, you'll die. Peter was still young. So he knew it wasn't his time yet. And uh, the Bible says that his church was at Mary's house. It says in Acts 12, I think it was verse 4 or 5, but prayer was made. Those four words changed the course of history. I understand the grace of God. I understand the power of God. I understand the sovereignty of God. But humanly speaking, were not for those four words, we'd be short. Two epistles in our New Testament. Those four words literally changed, altered, and secured the course of the history of the church. 
Uh, and then it, it describes their prayer. But prayer was made without ceasing. It doesn't just mean stretched out this way. It also means stretched out this way. Without ceasing. Unto God. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. Most praying, at least most public praying, is more unto others. Uh, you know, we pray with the intent of impressing others with our jargon. Uh, very little public prayer is really unto God. Sometimes we get so involved in the request that we're praying for, maybe a dire need. We pray to the need. We don't pray to God. What's your mind on? What is your mind thinking about? What's your mind thinking about when you pray? It ought to be thinking about the one to whom you're praying. Uh, without ceasing unto God of the church. That's corporate prayer. Uh, you know, the, the, Jesus gave the promise and said, If one of you will ask. Then he said in Matthew 18, 19, If any two of you will ask. And uh, he, he pays attention when, his, when a group of his people, his children get together and they have the same burden and they pour out their hearts. God pays attention. And uh, then, of course, for him it was specific. And uh, I'm trusting that you'll pick up Brother Waymire's disease and forget that in case I decide to preach it tomorrow. Uh, anyway, Psalm 126. Uh, we, we started talking last night about soul, and I think we'll just continue the theme, the Lord willing, this morning. Uh, now, now listen to me, Kevin. I'm going to preach this morning primarily about uh, the human responsibility. Uh, I understand, like you do, that God does all the work. You don't do the saving. You don't do the convincing. You don't, you don't do, in reality, you don't even do the persuading. God does it all. We all understand that. There's nobody. There's nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm almost Brother Jim Waymire's age. Feel sorry for me. There's nobody, there's nobody that I've ever met that doesn't understand that. Everybody knows. It's not man that does the saving, it's God. We all know that. Uh, God the Father draws them. He's the one who does the drawing. John 6.44, I think it was. Jesus said, nobody comes to me, but the Father has to draw him. God the Father draws him. God the Holy Spirit. Reproves him. We say convict. Reprove means pretty much the same. Convinces him. Jesus said when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will reprove the world of sin. Not sins. Sin. What sin? Said of unbelief. Of sin because they believe not on me. The Father draws. The Holy Spirit convicts. Jesus is the one who does the saving. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. None other name under heaven given to my... We understand that. And the Bible does the enlightening. The Lord of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It enlightens the mind, etc. Psalm 19. We understand that. We understand that. However, something that we... Uh, is either over overdone or way, way underdone is this human responsibility. Your part. And mine, uh, and we've we've uh, we, I think I think we've missed a lot of it. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to enumerate on this verse because we'll come to it later. But in Proverbs, I'm laying a foundation. This is the runway. 
In Proverbs 11.30, the Bible says, The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Now, somebody said, you don't win a soul. That's the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's spoken about in there. But, you know, where in the Bible do you find the Holy Spirit called the righteous? Not once. Not a single time. But you find the saved called the righteous nearly 100 times in your Bible. So not talking about the Holy Spirit. Talk about the righteous person. The righteous, without, without the word man or one or person behind it, becomes a plural word. Refer to all the same. And the Bible says that we win souls. Understand, understand, I know the Holy Spirit does it all. Understand that. And so do you. But there is a, you know, when you talk about winning, that means there's a fight involved. A struggle. A race. A contest. We can enumerate on that. There's some struggle that goes on in here. How much I should talk to that guy and embarrass myself. Well, there's an outward struggle. The devil doesn't want you to, etc. Uh, but there is a human responsibility. In, uh, in uh, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, We are to go and teach. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Hey, brother, good to see you. Uh, go ye therefore and teach all nations. That word teach means to make disciples. Wait a minute. Jesus commanded you and me to make somebody a disciple. He commanded that. Human responsibility. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul said, I become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. The child comes to the preacher, or the mama maybe, and points to the preacher and says, he saved me. We pat him on the head and correct him immediately. Oh, no, you know, Jesus saved you. Understand that. I think that child does too. But that child's using Bible language when he says that. Paul said that by all means I might say, let me ask you a question. Suppose Jim Weimar is in the lake drowning. Can you swim? That's not a, an air flotation device. Okay. Uh, gave it up for lint. Let's suppose he's in the lake drowning. Suppose, suppose I, I, I see him and I jump in the boat and go out there and, and I throw him a rope with a life ring on it. And Jim Waymire gets in the boat and we land him back on shore. Ask your question. Who saved him? Was it the boat? Couldn't have done it without it. Was it the rope? Was it the life ring? Was it me? What difference does it make? Amen or only? What difference does it make? Jim is on shore safe. That's all that matters. Uh, you know, we, we, we need to quit fussing about who did what. And just do it. Do our responsibility. Now, Paul said that I might save some. In James 5, 19 and 20, uh, James used the same language. He said, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, that is, you become backslidden, and one convert or change him, let him, the, the restored backslider, know that he that converteth or changeth a sinner... From the error of his way shall what? Save a soul from death. So when you win someone to Christ, 
There is a sense, biblically, in which you saved that part. Now, God did the saving. I understand that. I know that. I, I don't... I still have to repeat that for you. <laughs> I know that. You know that. that. There's no question about it. Nobody doesn't know that. But it is biblical language. It says, the soul winner saves the soul from death. And hides the multitude. Now, we can go on and on and on. We won't. Second Corinthians 5, verse 11. What did Paul say? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we what? What's the word used? Persuasion. Yeah, so there's a persuasion. That I, uh, uh, I'm supposed to go out and I'm supposed to persuade people, try to persuade people to turn to Christ. Now, God has to do it. But I have news for you. He can't do it without a man. He's voluntarily limited himself. Otherwise, there would be no need for the Great Commission. We'd all become Calvinists and sit back on our big, fat, dead fundamentalism and let the world go to hell. He said, there is a... Pers- if there's a persuasion, you know, to persuade somebody to do something, there's a method. So it's good to learn, you know, how to effectively present the gospel. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that this week, and we don't have time to, but notice the language. In Acts 18.4, says Paul persuaded the Jews and the Greeks to come to Jesus. In Acts 19.26, Paul persuaded. So what I'm saying, it is Bible language. Uh, we under... Do I have to say it again? I will then. <laughs> we understand that God does the work. We know that. Nobody doesn't know that. Quit bugging me about that. Leave me alone. <laughs> but the Bible does say we save, we persuade, we win. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, the human responsibility. I mean, after all, what, what did Jude say? Of some have compassion. I'm glad he didn't say all. Some people are hard to have compassion on. I mean, just almost impossible. So he said, of some. Then he said, making a difference. And by the way, compassion does make a difference. Of some have compassion, making a difference. And then before he finished the context, he said, and others, those who don't have compassion, don't save with fear. So some people, I have to try to win them to Christ, persuade them to turn to Jesus Christ, because I have compassion on them. That would be loved ones, etc. Those that, you know, grab my compassion. Those I don't have compassion on. I don't mean I don't care, but I don't have compassion on them. I'm to save them out of fear. Fearful what will happen to them if they don't get saved. Not a person here walking down Main Street. You got a Main Street here in Festus? Not a person here walking, not a person in this room. If you were walking down Main Street and the building was on fire, total strangers were inside. Maybe people you didn't even like. You'd run for help. If you're a humane at all, you'd run for help. Uh, and uh, that's, what, uh, that's what he's talking about there. Now, I repeat. God does all the work. The Father does the drawing, John six forty four. The Holy Spirit does the uh, does the reproving, the convincing, John sixteen eight through eleven. Jesus Christ does the saving, John fourteen six Acts four twelve. The Word of God does the enlightening, 
Psalm 19. But there is, there is, there is a, an underemphasized, maybe for sake of, you know, not one people think that we don't understand. There's another underemphasis of this human responsibility. Um, that's why, even with that as a basis, in our Bible college, we have a course on soul winning, and it majors on how to approach a person and how to effectively present the gospel. Uh, one of the things that I emphasize, I haven't gotten to the sermon yet. Don't worry, lunch will hold. One of the things we emphasize in that course is that usually when we talk to others, we talk in language we understand. When you talk to a sinner, don't use language he doesn't understand. You know, when I talk to somebody, I usually ask them, for a very first question, what's your church background? That's the reason I ask. And in the first place, that's an easy transition from the secular to the spiritual. It's easy for me. I'm flesh. I'm like Paul. Romans 7. Carnal, soul understand. Easy for me. That's easy for him. Very non-embarrassing for him. Not only that, it gives me a little bit about what he might believe. I, don't, I meet many today who have never one time in their life, never one time in their life been to church. But they do have a church background. Mom and Daddy used to go. If he says, I'm a Catholic, or I'm from a Catholic background, then I don't use the phrase, receive Christ. Because they think that's taking the wafer and drinking the quote-unquote juice. If he says, uh, well, I was brought up in the watchtower, Joe's I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't ask if you were to die today, you're 100% sure you'd go to heaven. You know, the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter where it is at that point. In fact, some of you look at me cross-eyed. The truth is, we're not going to live in heaven forever. If Jesus comes this moment, we'll live in heaven for seven, excuse me, a thousand and seven years. Then it says after the tribulation period and then the great white throne judgment that, that John saw the new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. Some people think it's going to hold for the earth. I don't see it having a stopping place anywhere. It's coming down to earth. That's where we're going to live with him forever. Read the Bible. What I'm saying is when you, I don't know why, I don't know why I'm following this rabbit trail. But when you witness to somebody, use language they understand. Yeah. Have you ever been saved? I've actually, had, I've actually had two or three people tell me, oh yeah, I was drowning one time. Or a car was about to run over me and somebody put... Use language they understand. If you don't use language they understand, be prepared to explain it. I don't know why I got off on that, but that was a lot of fun. Uh... But we understand, don't we? I mean, a great class, we understand that God does the saving. God does the convincing. God does the enlightening. But He has to do it through you. God only has one way to save a sinner. That's for a saint to go tell him how. If that weren't the case, Michael might as well come home. God only has one way to save lost sinners. That's for a saved sinner to go tell him how. That's why Ezekiel quoted God by saying, I've warned the wicked, now if you don't warn him, his blood is on your hands. 
Well, preacher, that's Old Testament. Oh, that's Hebrew. Fiddlesticks. Thou shalt not kill is Old Testament too. Isn't it amazing how you take something out of the Old Testament and relegate it out because you don't put it in another quote-unquote dispensation because you don't want to. What about, what about Paul in Acts chapter 20? He said, I'm pure from the blood of all men. I've ceased not to warn you night and day for three years with tears. Ah, did you know that's New Testament? There is a responsibility that you and I have. Now, in Psalm 126, it says this, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream, sleepy. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now look at verse number 6. Verse number 6 is not in the local context about New Testament soul winning. Local context. It's talking about the return from captivity of, of the Jews. Had nothing to do with New Testament soul winning. However, the outline of the, the natural outline of, first, uh, of Psalm 126.6 fits perfectly to a T. So what I'm preaching from that passage this morning is not interpretation, it's application. Every passage has only one interpretation, but it might have many applications. And if you're going to apply a passage, you would be safe to have a lot of corroborating passages, evidence in other places of the Bible, the show that applies. Um, and notice what that verse says. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall, without a doubt, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing the sheaves with him. Now, that passage is not about New Testament soul wedding. However, the outline fits. And this is one of those outlines, by the way, Maya, that my wife did not give me. I got this one from your wife. <laughs> uh, uh, the outline fits. Is that every time Dr. John R. Rice, I, I used to go to hear him preach often. If anytime I lived in Denver, uh, anytime he was in, no matter where I was living, if I got to go here and preach, I wouldn't hear him preach. He wasn't a real dynamic preacher, but he was a compassionate preacher. Never heard him preach but what he did not weep. Souls. I remember seeing Dr. John R. Rice at South Sheridan Baptist Church in Denver, Colorado. Ed Nelson was the pastor. Dr. Rice had preached, and then when we left that large auditorium, we're going up the slope out to the outside. That was John R. Rice in the aisle in his wheelchair. Not long before he died. And I, he had a little girl about eight years old sitting on his lap, and as New Testament opened, it was leading her to the Lord. I never saw John Rice sign a Bible or sign a book, but why did it write underneath his signature, Psalm 126.6? He was using the application to New Testament soul. I want you to notice three things in this passage. Three things in that verse uh, that uh, are ingredients to successful soul winning. I'm not just talking about witnessing. Witnessing is a method by which we win souls, or the method. I'm talking about soul winning, winning people of Christ. 
everything you and I, everything we need to know about being a, a successful soul winner is found in that verse. And when I say successful soul winning, I don't mean win one a day. I, I, and I'll explain that to you in a minute. Now notice the first thing. The first thing is go. If you don't go, you're not going to, you're not going to win anybody. You don't, if you don't take the initiative to stop people and ask them, they're not going to, you know, I'm, I'm 75. Can't whistle. And I've never had anybody fall at my feet. Grab me around the ankle and say, oh, please, show me how to be saved. I've been watching you. I want to be saved. It's never happened. Not one single time. If you're going to be a soul hunter, you have to take the initiative to go out of your way, get off your beaten path, and go where they are. It's no coincidence that the first word of the Great Commission is go. It's no coincidence that the first two letters of the word gospel spell go. Go spell. No coincidence. You know the difference? The one thing that makes the difference between a successful soul winner, a guy who wins people of Christ, and a failure at soul winning, who doesn't win anybody? You know the difference? Right here. The successful soul winner talks to more people, that's all. I, Pastor, I used to think, back in my younger days, we did have younger days, didn't we, Brother Waymar? Yeah, I don't remember the hill. You don't remember yesterday. Uh, we have, uh, I used to think, boy, uh, you know, let's put a name on I used to think Dr. Howell, oh man, what a magnificent soul winner. He's got the gift. But no such thing as the gift of soul winning. You read the gifts in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, you won't find soul winning as a gift. It's not a gift, it's a command. It's a command. We are told in the imperative to go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations. How do you make somebody a disciple? You want them to Christ. That's the only way to be a disciple. It's a command. Now here, the very first step, and the primary step that makes the difference between a successful soul winner and somebody who doesn't win souls is the successful soul winner talks to more people. That's all. It's not a gift. It's not their plan. It's, it's just that they talk to more people. I understand some people have more opportunity to talk to more people. I understand that. But everybody who's going to be a soul winner has got to determine I'm going to go out of my way. I mean, you know, we often pray, and I do, Lord, bring somebody across my path today. And that's good. You can't beat that. But God expects, if, you're going to, if we're going to reach every creature in all the world, you'll have to go out of your way. You'll have to get off your planned path. You'll have to, you'll have to get out, step out of your comfort zone. You'll have to get out of your box and go talk to somebody where they are. And that's not just for missionaries. By the way, crossing the sea, a missionary isn't one who crosses the sea. A missionary is the one who sees the cross. An axe there all. That was profound. I should bottle that, shouldn't I? Sell it on the table. 
Going, first step, going, very first step. Now, by the way, there's no coincidence that's the first step. That's not the second step, that's the first step. He not going forth, and what's the next word? Weepeth. Ah, that's the burden. Now, notice, it's, the burden doesn't come first and then you go. You go first and then you get the burden. That's the order. I used to pray. I still do. I used to pray, Lord, please give me a burden for souls. Thinking without verbalizing it that if I just had a burden, boy, it would be a lot easier. I'd be a soul winner. That's backwards. God didn't say get a burden so you'll go. He said you go. And when you go, I'll give you the burden. If you are, you don't even have to be a super Christian. If you are human and humane, you won't talk to many people. And see, they're lost, blind condition, totally out of the way, before you'll get a burden. It'll be automatic. He that goeth forth and weepeth, then he said, the third one is bearing precious seed. Now we know Jesus said, the seed is the word of God. Seed is the gospel. The picture here in the language used is that of a leaky a farmer with a leaky seed basket. Can you picture an Old Testament farmer? They didn't have John Deere and Massey Ferguson, you know, plow the fields for them. They went out with a, with a mule, maybe or an oxen, or maybe even just by hand, and, and they cut one row at a time. Then the farmer would have uh, a strap with a, a, a skin basket hanging on his side. And he'd be going up and down the, the, the pre-cut rows, and he'd be planting the seed, so many in each little hole. Now, I would call that Thursday night soul winning, or blessed visitation, or on purpose soul winning. When you specifically stop what you're doing and go to somebody and tell them how to be saved. But little does that farmer know, as he plants seed in those specially prepared places, there's a hole in his basket. And seed is leaking out of that hole. And the wind is blowing it. And somebody's finding fertile ground. That's the idea. And he's getting, he doesn't realize it, but he's getting a lot of fruit, maybe more, from his accidentally, you know, his leaked seed. That's the idea here. We are to go, as we go, God will take care of the burden. Don't you worry about that. And we're going to go with a leaky seed basket. You know what that means? That, may, uh, that involves gospel tracts. Everywhere you go, you ought to carry a stack of tracts with you. We should never be caught out there without tracts. In here, okay, but not out there. Every single Sunday, every single Sunday, your pastor ought to have to refill that, that track rack. That's why gospel tracts come in. You can put gospel tracts where you can't talk to somebody. I drive a lot. When I drive, I sip coffee and drink water. I'm 75. Do I have to tell you the rest of the story? Everywhere I go, those little rooms and those big rooms, everywhere I go, gospel tracks are left. Um, well, our, our young people were out. This would have been 30 years ago. Brother Parker was in their heyday down there. And they were passing out tracks and knocking on doors, and they left a track. 
there was a lot must I do to be saved. John R. Rice, sword of the Lord, on a door. And they didn't think anything about it. They went on to the next door. Seventeen years later, after I moved out there and we joined the church, our pastor got a letter in the mail. Seventeen years later. And it was from Germany. And the letter said, I live in Germany now. My name is, and it was a woman's name. I used to live in Patterson, Missouri. But somebody left this track, this pamphlet, on my door. I ignored it. But somehow, somehow, when we moved, it got put in with the stuff we move. And I'm in Germany now, and just the other day I picked this up. And I read it. And I got saved. That's not the only story like that either. Uh, that's a part. That's a part, isn't it? Having a, that's the leaky seed. That's not the on purple soul winning. It's the leaky seed basket. I mean, you know, if, if you're in a restaurant and you're going to leave a lousy tip, don't leave a track with your church name on it. Put somebody else's church name on it. But leave a tray. I, 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 I've gotten in the habit now of going in a restaurant. I've had that habit a long time. I've gotten in the habit now of going in restaurants and when the lady delivers the meal, usually it's a lady, sometimes it's not. And uh, when the waiter or waitress delivers the meal, I always say, look, we're about to pray. And that's a blessing on this food. I forget where I picked it up. might have been you. I don't remember. Do you have anything you want me to pray about? We were, my wife and I were in um, a restaurant somewhere. I, I eat breakfast too close to you. and I'm losing it. By the way, Joe Biden's going to put us on his cabinet. <laughs> and now... Uh, uh, I said that to a young lady. Oh, we were, at, we were at the Huddle House in Shelbyville, Tennessee, first week of August. And I said that to the lady. I said, we're about to eat this food, but before we eat, we always pray and ask the blessing. Is there anything you want us to pray about? That young girl, 17 years old, from New York City, tattoos all over her arms, tears. we got to roll down her face. Yes, she said, please, please pray for my brother, 12 years old, dying of cancer. So we prayed for him. Before we left the restaurant, another evangelist friend, Bobby McGilliard, and, and uh, uh, they came in and sat down with us. When we drove out the parking lot, Bobby had his New Testament open, was witnessing to that girl. She followed us out the parking lot. I don't know if she got saved or not. What I'm saying is, have a leaky seed basket. Don't you go anywhere but what you don't leave the gospel. And that's the idea here. Where to go, we'll develop a burden, we'll have a leaky seed basket. Now, turn to Proverbs 11. If we don't finish this session, this lesson before midnight, (laughs) we'll finish it in the next hour. Proverbs 11.30 is the Have you ever heard of the law of first mention? The first time a doctrine is mentioned in the Bible, that's the foundation of that doctrine. Everything you need to know about that doctrine is in that first mention. 
Everything else the Bible says it is built on what the first mention says. That's just common sense. Yeah, I mean, you got a book that was written over a period of nearly 2,000 years by 40 different human writers from 40 plus without course and, or, or comparison. And, and uh, in that fashion, humanly speaking, God put the Bible together. He gave the words, of course. And the law of first mention states that. What I'm going to read to you is the first time, the first mention in all of the Bible of soul winning as soul winning. First time it's called that. In fact, we'll go a step farther. That's the only time it's mentioned and called soul winning. If that's the case, then if I'm going to def get a definition of what soul winning is, that'd be the best place to get it, wouldn't it? Only time it's called soul winning in the Bible is right there. And if I want a definition of what soul winning is, that's where I get it. Now listen to what the verse says. And let's read it carefully. Don't read it like you usually do when you're rushing to get through your three minute, your five minute, three chapter conscience easer. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a what? Tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wife. Now, notice. He did not say the fruit of the righteous is a piece of fruit. He said the fruit of the righteous is a tree. What kind of tree? Tree of life. What is a tree of life? It's a living tree. What does a living tree do? It bears its own fruit. And he that wanted souls. In other words, when I go and I win this man to Christ, So, uh, soul winning is not getting decisions. Thank you. Got two amens, three amens, and a grunt, and that's right. Soul winning is not making decisions. Soul winning is reproducing yourself in someone who reproduces himself. himself. That's all. And he that wins souls is wise. By the way, if he that wins souls is wise, what is he that doesn't win souls? That's foolish, unwise. Now, who are we to witness to? Everybody. Jesus said, every creature in every place. That's what he said. That's what he emphasized. Every time he gave it, he gave the Great Commission three times. The Holy Spirit recorded it five times. The last chapters of each of the Gospels and then in Acts 1-8. And in all of those cases, he said, we're to go to all the world, we're to go to every creature. Every creature. There's only one way to go to every creature. Not everybody has a computer, not everybody has a telephone, not everybody listens to the radio or watches television. The only way to find every creature is to go to every door. That's where they live, behind doors. 
so we're the good of every creature. However, do you know there's a certain kind of person that Jesus taught we're the target? Well, not to ignore the others. Leaky seed basket. We're to give the gospel to everybody. But he said there's a certain kind of person that you're to look for. Let's look at that person, then we'll have to shut her down. We're brave. Look at look at um, Mark. I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hurry up and get your stockings off. Look at look at Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-six says, "When he Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd." Then said he to the disciples, "The What's the next word? Harvest. Harvest. One man can read, and the crowd decides that's not bad nowadays. Well, harvest. Harvest. I'd circle that word if I were you. Truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Then he said, the rest of the sentence, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the... What's the word? Harvest. Two can read. Good. Good. That he will send forth laborers into his... Harvest. All right. So three times... Three times in two verses, Jesus used the word harvest about where there's a shortage of laborers and where to target, where to go after. Now, you can let that go if you like. Turn to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, the twelve have gone out. They've won a great multitude of people of Christ. And Jesus now gathers 70 of those multitudes, handpicked baby Christians. Baby Christians. He called them lambs. Ascendios lambs among wolves. Why didn't he choose the more seasoned Christians? Why the babies? Maybe the more seasoned ones were willing. They thought others ought to do it. Maybe that's all he had. But he sent lambs out. Look what it says. After these things, Luke 10, verse 1. The Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face unto every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, Thee... Harvest, five times in three verses, he used that word, truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, and what did he call the Lord? Lord of the harvest. Didn't call him the Lord of the sowing, or the Lord of the weeding, or the Lord of the watering. Though he is that, he called him the Lord of the harvest. That he sent forth labors into his harvest. So now, now, now uh, six times... In only three verses, Jesus used the word harvest where the shortage is where we're to target. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus had just won that woman of ill repute. She had the disciples were in town at Burger King fetching double meat whopper with cheese, extra pickle and onion, hold the mayonnaise. And while they were gone, this woman came out. Jesus took up a conversation with her, and he won her to himself. When she got saved, she dropped her water pots. Before they hit the ground, her little Samaritan legs carried her halfway into the city. Sychar. She went up to all the men, a woman of ill repute. She went to all the men. Why the men? She knew them. She was well familiar with them. And she said to them, come on out, and I want to introduce you to somebody who told me everything I've ever done. Hey, she wasn't telling the truth. Jesus hadn't told her everything. She was exaggerating. But she was a woman. Leave her alone. Let her exaggerate. 
I just say that quietly. I will guarantee you this. If Jesus dug into your closet and then dug out of your closet what he dug out of hers, you'd have thought he'd known everything. And you know the, the record tells us in that chapter, half the men of the town got saved because of her testimony. Though she could not win, she took with her out to a soul winner who could. If you can't win someone to Christ and you've got a real burden for him, nothing wrong with you. Take him to pastor to see him. Maybe he can say something that that's what, that's what she did. About that time, the disciples came back. Verse 31 says, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Now, they wouldn't have to beg me to do that. <laughs> but they prayed him, Master, and he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. What had he just been doing? Soul winning. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, somebody give them something to eat. They still didn't understand. Jesus said to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. What is the will of him that sent me? People get saved. So many. And to finish his work. Then in verse number 35, Jesus said to the disciples, There are yet four months, and then cometh, uh-oh. There's that infamous word again. Harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. The fields are white already to harvest. Eight times in four verses Jesus used the word harvest about calling God the Lord of the harvest, about the specific type of person he targeted he wanted them and he wants us to target the harvest. Now, I'm to be frank with you. I'm not a farmer. I don't know the first thing about farming. Not the first thing. But I know what the harvest is. When you plant the seed, when you dig the ground, that's not the harvest. You have to dig the ground or you won't have one, but that's not the harvest. When you plant the seed, that's not the harvest. That's necessary. Nobody will ever have a harvest if seed is not planted. When you do all the weeding and the bug spraying and all the, you know, the hoeing up and fertilizing, that's not the harvest. That's necessary, but that's not the harvest. The harvest is this. The noun form of the word harvest refers to the fruit that is ripe and ready for picking. In the verb form, it refers to the act of picking, of harvesting the fruit that's ripe and ready. You know what Jesus is saying? It's pretty obvious, I think. We are to give the gospel with a leaky seed basket to everybody. But while we're out there, look for those who are ready. If you've got a friend that wants to argue about it, I'm going to argue with him, but I don't want to spend a lot of time arguing with him about it. While you do, somebody whose harvest is going to die and go to hell. You go look for something. You know, every change in life, every change in life, a birthday, an anniversary, you know, a homecoming, a, a graduation, a death in the family, a say, every change in life causes people to be insecure. That's why when Desert Storm hit, Dan Rather, and I thought he was a devil incarnate, started saying, pray for America. They all got religious. They get insecure when change of life comes. Uncertainty. What is that? What is that? That's God making 
those who are not usually God-conscious, God-conscious. And they're the harvest. And a person, hey, it's, I am to have a leaky seed basket. I am to go everywhere preaching the gospel to everybody. I'm to be gospel tracts, personal testimony, invitation to church. I'm to do everything I can to leak the gospel everywhere. But while I'm doing that, I'm specifically to look for people who are ripe and ready. I've got time to tell you how. You do it how you want to. Everybody has a different way. There are five books back there on the table on soul winning. Only five copies left. Don't find over. No bloodshed in the church. Not allowed. This is not Kabul. It's Festus. Uh, but, but, but I teach it up how I find the hardest. I have three questions that I ask. Three simple questions. Then between each question, I always say, no, let me ask you another question. That way they don't feel like they're getting a third degree. And you ask those three questions. I've never asked those three questions, but what out of ten people I couldn't find one person who was harvest. If you have a better way, fine. I tell people, people say, I don't like the way you do it. Well, I like the way I'm doing it wrong better than the way you're not doing it at all. I tell them this, show me your fish and I'll change my bait. I mean, if you've got a better way, I'd be more than happy. Uh, but Jesus said we're to go out for the harvest. Now, I used to think, when I was a kid, I was a kid. I was a kid once. But uh, me and Noah, all three of us, you, you two, we went to school together, didn't we? A little kid came up to me in Chiefland, Florida one time. And he looked up at me and he said, Peter, was you on the ark with Noah? I looked and I said, no, I wasn't on the ark with Noah. A smile like looked up at me and said, how come you didn't drown? Yeah, it didn't take me that long to catch on. <laughs> uh, but I used to think when I was a kid, when we get to heaven, we're going to go around with, you know, uh, will there be any stars in my crown? don't know where we got that idea. But counting, seeing who's got the most stars on your crown. Then I read Daniel chapter 12. Here's the last verse. Honest. Daniel 12. Daniel. Starts with a D. But they're not in alphabetical order. Sorry. The first seven chapters of Daniel, to us, are mostly history with a little bit of prophecy. But, uh, the, the, then from chapter 8 to chapter 11, it's mostly prophecy with a little bit of history. And when you get to chapter 12, Daniel gives some isolated remarks about different prophetic subjects to tie the loose ends together. For instance, in chapter 12 and verse 1, he gives just a brief overview mention of the time of trouble, tribulation period. Then he gives a brief overview mention in verse 2 of the doctrine of the resurrection. He doesn't separate them. He doesn't give chronological order. just mentions that there will be one. Then when you get to verse 3 of chapter 12, he gives a general statement about reward time for believers. Listen to what it says, and then I'm finished. They that be wise. Uh-oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you let sinners go to hell, are you wise? No. He that winneth souls is wise. The soul winner. Shall shine 
as the brightness of the firmament. Hey, what's the firmament? It's the sky. Does the firmament shine? It doesn't. Uh, however, you can look right through the firmament and see the stars. We used to think the firmament doesn't shine until we send our first astronauts up to circle the earth. Do you know what they said from up here? They're looking down. They said it glitters like gold. You know what that tells me? Soul winners might not shine much from earth's viewpoint, but they sure do from heaven's. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and... And something else now, an addition. They that turn many, not a few, many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever. What shines the most? Stars are firmament. Well, stars do. That's why you can go out and look right through the firmament and see the stars. They shine brighter than the firmament does. So what's he saying? There are some who will dibble-dabble about it once in a while and not minimizing that, once in a while they will win someone. And hallelujah for that. But there are some who will sink themselves into it, hook, line, and sinker. They'll eat, breathe, live, sleep, turning sinners to Jesus Christ. And they will shine like the stars forever. At the judgment seat of Christ will be rewarded. Judgment seat of Christ is not a time to punish for sin. That was done on Calvary. It's a time of reward for service. And the Bible says we'll get crowns. Read, read Revelation 4, 1, the rapture, and then the rest of chapter 4, the attending events. And you go into chapter 5 and, and find out the holy commotion that's going to take place in heaven when we land there. And you'll find that they have crowns, and they're casting those crowns at Jesus' feet. You'll find in chapter 19, when he comes back the second time, he's wearing many crowns. I wonder where he got them. Not just one crown, many crowns. But in chapter 4, four 5, we're casting our crowns at Jesus' feet. And we're saying, Thou art worthy. You did it all. You did it all. You get the reward. You get the crown. I don't It's not mine, it's yours. Oh, you talk about a time. Mm. If that don't light your fire, your wood's wet, if you got any. Can you imagine getting a letter from the next president of the United States? It almost doesn't matter who it is. It would be an honor to get a letter inviting you to have a part in the inauguration, have a part in the inauguration ceremony. Big, great honor. I have news for you. I don't hold a candle. So the fact that one day we're going to take our crowns off. But we've received for those we've faithfully witnessed to and tried to win. And we'll cast them at Jesus' feet and said, Father, you did the drawing. Holy Spirit, you did the convicting. Jesus, you did the saving. The crown is yours. What a time. But can you imagine being in that crowd as a spectator? 
I mean, after all, if you haven't got a crown, how are you going to crown him? Only the crowned can crown. Huh? What am I saying? Same thing I said last night. A little more direct this time. If there's one ounce of truth to that book, just one ounce, there's a heaven for the saved and a hell for the unsaved. If that's the case, we don't need a great commission. Common sense on it all. What have we got to do? What is there to do? But keep sinners out of hell. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Let's stand together. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Stand, please, if you're able to. I'm not going to sing an invitation. We don't have a piano player. But the altar's open. If you want to find a place on an old-fashioned altar or make one where you are, an unbended knee, maybe do some confessing. Maybe asking God for wisdom. Maybe making some holy vows. Good place to do it. Good time to do it. If you need to come, you come. Heavenly Father, help us to apply, oh God, what we've been refreshed about this in the morning. Challenge our hearts. Heads about it as they're closed. You want to come find a place at this altar and pray? Or you want to kneel at your chair? Pray. Make some holy vows to God. Some, don't just say, Lord, please help me to be a better soul winner than go about your way. Commit yourself. Commit yourself. Commit yourself. Make some holy vows to him. Pastor. We'll give a few moments for you to... Take time with the Lord. If you need to sit down, that's fine. Or if you need to kneel, that's fine. Our altars are open.